I'm Eleanor Collinson, Senior Researcher at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr Amy King, a Senior Lecturer in the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University, with particular expertise in China-Japan relations, Chinese foreign and security policy, and the economic security nexus in the Asia-Pacific region. She is also a research fellow with the Australia-Japan Research Centre and serves on the editorial board of the East Asia Forum. Dr King currently holds a Westpac Research Fellowship and an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellowship to investigate China's role in shaping the international economic order. She is the author of China-Japan Relations After World War II, Empire, Industry and War, 1949-1971, to published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Her book examines the post-World War II rebuilding of economic ties between the People's Republic of China and Japan. Dr King received her PhD in International Relations from the University of Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Beijing and Tokyo have long had a fraught relationship, with a chasm between the two countries having been deepened by an escalation of friction over the East China Sea in 2012. In October 2018, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and People's Republic of China President Xi Jinping agreed to start a new era in bilateral relations during Prime Minister Abe's visit to Beijing, the first state visit to China by a Japanese Prime Minister in seven years. Amy King joins us today to discuss developments in the Japan-China relationship, where it might head, and the implications for Australia. Amy, welcome to the Yakri Podcast. It's good to be with you. So this so-called new era in Sino-Japanese relations agreed upon last year by Prime Minister Abe and President Xi, is there any evidence that this has indeed begun? Yeah, well, I think if, you, if we look back at the, the Sino-Japanese relationship over the last sort of seven or eight years, uh, it is clear that I think there has been a real up, uptick uh, in the relationship. Uh, we could call it a new era, um, if we like. Um, I think starting around mid-2017. Um, so if we, we go back a few years before that, uh, the relationship really de- deteriorated uh, in 2010 um, and then even further in 2012 um, as a result of a range of, uh, of incidents in the East China Sea um, over the contested uh, islands in the, the Senkaku or Diaoyu uh, island chain. Um, and that led to sort of a halting of all high-level exchanges between the two sides, uh, no leaders' meetings, um, and considerable um, kind of almost crisis moments. You know, there were, there were news headlines around the time about, you know, the likelihood of a war between Japan and China breaking out. Um, and that was largely the result of fairly unpredictable, uh, dangerous um, Chinese behaviour in the East China Sea as, as, as China used its aircraft and, and maritime forces really to compel Japan to recognise the existence of a territorial dispute. So, so things were, you know, really in a, in a fairly negative state for a few years there. We had some um, kind of picking up of, uh, of, of meetings between the two leaders sort of on the sidelines of, of things like the APEC summit uh, in 2014 uh, and again in, in 2016, um, but not a great deal really taking place. Uh, but as I said before, that, that really did start to shift in, in the middle of 2017. And I think particularly as, as Prime Minister Abe announced that Japan was ready to uh, engage with, with China, particularly on the, the Belt and Road Initiative. 
Um, we had then some, some high-level meetings between she and Abe, the first ever phone call uh, between the two leaders mm. uh, in, in uh, May of 2018. And then, of course, um, uh, a fairly significant visit uh, by Prime Minister Abe to, to China uh, in October last year when this, this new era, I guess, is pronounced and the, and the two countries uh, forge a whole host of agreements in, in things like infrastructure, um, technology cooperation, intellectual property agreements, uh, currency swaps, things like this. Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll pick up on your point about um, Japan signalling its intent that it's ready to engage with the Belt and Road Initiative a little bit later on. But mm. before we get into that, I just wanted to explore uh, what are your thoughts about um, what the driving forces are behind this rapprochement of sorts, if we could call it that, between China and Japan, and how much of an impact has increasingly fraught US-China relations had on this shift in tack? Yeah, well, I think certainly the US relationship with China has had an important impact. But let's take a step back first, um, because I think there are aspects of this, you know, just within the bilateral Japan-China relationship, which explain what's going on here. Um, and partly it's that, that neither of the two countries want to go to war with one another uh, in the East China Sea. And yet uh, they were sort of sliding in the direction of some kind of, uh, of dangerous collision or uh, instability um, around 2012-13. So I think both sides were using unofficial cha uh, channels, uh, di uh, sort of delegations of business people and such to try and find ways to uh, kind of improve the relationship. Um, even even before 2017, 2018, um, to try and walk back some of that, that tension. But I think you're right that, that the US-China relationship, uh, the election of Donald Trump in particular, has ha been a really important driving force. Um, and so for Japan, there are concerns about uh, what Trump is doing uh, to undermine the kind of the open global economic order, uh, his, pr his sort of protectionist approaches to, to trade, um, concerns about um, what Trump, uh, how Trump approaches his alliance relationships. And so I think Japan is reaching out to China to engage on areas that are of mutual interest to them both. And that's, you know, things like preserving the World Trade Organization, uh, preserving multilateral institutions. Um, the North Korean issue is also, I think, a, an important driver of this rapprochement. Um, and again, uh, Trump's sort of unpredictability, um, also Kim Jong-un's unpredictability, but, but certainly Trump's unpredictability and, uh, and, and you know, question marks over where, where the United States was uh, pursuing policy towards North Korea, I think has led Japan and China to try and reach out to one another to cooperate where possible uh, in, in putting shared pressure uh, on, on North Korea. And similarly, I think for China, there are some important drivers. I mean, for one, Japan is very important to China's economy. Um, you know, 30,000 odd Japanese firms operate in China, which is, uh, you know, Japan's the largest uh, foreign um, for number of foreign firms in China of any country in the world. Uh, so economically, Japan uh, is still crucially important. Um, and I think, you know, engagement with Japan, particularly on a sort of a sign signature issue like the Belt and Road, sort of thwarts thwarts the United States' efforts to isolate China uh, internationally um, and sort of makes it more difficult for, for Trump to cast China as a strategic competitor. Uh, so if, you know, if China does have this cooperation, even if limited, uh, with a key ally like Japan, then uh, that really does uh, undermine U.S. efforts in some ways towards China. 
Yeah, well, in terms of Trump, uh, depending on who you talk to, he's either an anomaly or a reflection of rather more deep-seated uh, policy thinking in the US establishment, albeit um, someone who uh, is prone to articulating it in a more extreme manner. Mm. Um, how sustainable um, do you think that this approach that Japan and China have taken of briefly at least setting aside differences in favour of focusing on economic cooperation in the long term is, or even in the medium term. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're right, and I would agree that, um, that, that perhaps Trump, although um, sounds very different to, to other previous US presidents, does represent a strand of thinking and concern about um, uh, ongoing US leadership uh, in Asia, um, and so, um, so perhaps you know some of these concerns were were um, echoing in Japan even before Trump's election. I think the real difference with Trump is is his lack of support for um, the the global economic order and the World Trade Organization and, and things like the TPP. So. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton administration, for example, would have, made, would have, have worked very differently, I think, with, with Japan um, and perhaps provided less of an impetus for Japan to reach out to China uh, on some of these initiatives. Um, so, you know, there is, I guess, the possibility that a, a future US president uh, might reverse some of these issues. But, but more generally, I think um, Japan is in a position it's always been in with respect to China and that it's caught between the US and China in some respects. Uh, the US alliance is absolutely crucial to Japan's security. Uh, and yet China is, is a vital economic partner for Japan, uh, a, a key um, strategic threat in many ways, um, but a country that, that Japan can't simply avoid and turn its back on. It, it's, you know, for ge geographic reasons in particular, um, needs to find ways to, uh, to work uh, cooperatively, productively with with China um, to prevent the um, you know the outbreak of of, of military conflict or uh, economic downturn. So uh, even in spite of um, you know the Trump factor, I think Japan would have been looking for ways to um, sort of rebuild that engagement with China. During Prime Minister Abe's visit to Beijing last year, both sides signed a number of memoranda of understanding signalling cooperation on infrastructure projects in third countries. Uh, these agreements weren't labelled as endorsement per se of Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. Now, shortly thereafter that, Japan signed an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, with Australia on boosting infrastructure in the, in the Indo-Pacific region. So how should we interpret this and what are the lessons for Australia in Japan's strategy? Well, I think Japan's taken a really creative approach here with respect to the issue of infrastructure. Um, back in 2017, in June of that year, um, Prime Minister Abe made a really important speech where he talked about kind of the world economy being at a crossroads and, uh, you know, in one direction lay kind of this closed protectionist uh, economic system um, represented by Trump uh, and, and Brexit in, in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, and in the other direction, you know, was this open, prosperous, free economic order. Um, and in sort of championing that, that open order, he not only talked about things like TPP um, and RCEP, he also talked about the role that China and the Belt and Road Initiative could play. Um, so he has offered this support for, uh, for China's um, uh, initiative with respect to infrastructure. That, that support is qualified. Um, 
Abe has been very clear to um, to sort of point out what I guess are Japan's red lines. You know, he he wants to see high quality infrastructure. He wants to see transparent approaches to procurement of infrastructure. Uh, he wants to ensure that uh, infrastructure lending to third-party countries doesn't um, come at the expense of uh, those those countries' finances. Um, but yet he has he has sort of made it clear that he's prepared to kind of find areas to collaborate with China. And I think that's a really important lesson for Australia. Um, there are areas of complementarity between the Japanese and Chinese approaches, and and Abe I think is working pretty creatively to find areas that the two countries could actually work together in terms of, of what they invest in. Mm. Um, it, it is easy to try and say we should we should ignore um, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative or um, uh, because, because of our fears and suspicions uh, of what it might represent, but of course we can't. It's, it's one of the signature policy issues uh, of the Chinese government. Uh, it's now written in the Chinese constitution. Uh, I think it's very much here to stay, whether we like it or not. Uh, we don't need to engage with all aspects of it, and we can be very clear about what our principles might be. But I think Japan um, shows a good example uh, of where we might work creatively to find you know, a series of, of projects, uh, whether they be in, in the Pacific or Southeast Asia, uh, where we could use you know, Australia's uh, expertise uh, in aid funding um, and approaches to uh, institutions and governance uh, and, and, and harnessing um, the, the very, very large sums of money that, that China is putting behind the Belt and Road. Um, so I think there's much that Australia could actually learn from, from Japan's approach here. Moving on now to domestic sentiment in Japan briefly. Mm. A, a few years ago in 2016, you observed in an opinion piece for the East Asia Forum that the Japanese business community was increasingly pessimistic about the Japan-China relationship and that it had grave fears about the political security and economic dimensions of the relationship with its most important neighbour. Has sentiment in Japan's business community changed much since then, and how does the Australian business community compare? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, unfortunately, uh, surveys of, of public sentiment are often somewhat lagging behind, the, you know, a year or two behind uh, the present time. Uh, and the organisation that ran that particular survey hasn't repeated itself since 2016, so it's difficult to make an exact comparison. Um, but there is some, some data that was released recently um, in 2017 by the Japan External Trade Organization, and that showed actually there had been something of a recovery um, in Japanese business sentiment towards China. Um, so half of the, the Japanese firms surveyed uh, reported that they actually planned to expand their, their business in China in the next year or two. Um, and that was up, I think, around 8 or 9% uh, on the previous year's survey. Um, and, and only a very, very small percentage of firms actually plan to, to close down their business in China. Now, a lot of that will have to do with, with business factors like labour costs um, and the general health of the Chinese economy, uh, which you know, is, it has downturned again since uh, that 2017 survey. Um, but I think it is, it is positive to see um, some of that uptick, and, and some of it is likely due to the resumption of high-level political contacts between the two sides and that sort of resetting uh, of the political and security relationship. It simply isn't uh, as precarious as it was back in you know, 20, 2012, 2013, 14. And do you have any views on how the Australian business community might compare? 
So that's actually something that I suspect you at ACRI have, have more <laughs> views on um, as you would watch that a bit more closely. Um, it's not something I study particularly closely myself. Um, and of course, one of the differences is, is the sheer size. I mean, Japan, as I mentioned previously, is the largest um, uh, country to, uh, sorry, has the largest number of, of foreign firms operating in China um, and, and significantly outweighs uh, even, you know, the United States, which is, which is second. Um, so it, it is a bit like comparing apples and oranges. Um, but uh, I, I suspect, you know, not being an expert here, but sort of the Australian views would be um, somewhat similar to Japan in terms of, you know, there being rising labour costs, um, some concerns about uh, the direction that the Chinese economy is, is going in terms of its, um, its focus on state-owned enterprises versus uh, the private economy, uh, and of course, you know, the health of the, the overall economy. Um, and, and probably I'd hazard a guess to say that, you know, the real rise in uh, US concerns about um, uh, Chinese technology, intellectual property theft um, uh, around firms like Huawei and such are probably also shared to some extent by Australia. But I think one of the real concerns in, in Australia would be the degree to which uh, the US wants to separate its supply chains uh, from, uh, from Chinese firms. Um, that would be something that both Australia and Japan, I think, would... Uh, concern that they would both share um, as as both would sort of feed into supply chains that um, uh, supply both uh, the United States and China. So any attempt to sever those would, would harm um, Japan, Japanese and Australian economic interests. And what about general public sentiment in Japan vis-a-vis -vis China? Well, it's been quite negative for some time. Um, I mean, really dating back to kind of the mid-2000s, um, back in 2004 and 5, uh, relationships, the relationship really deteriorated and there were very large-scale protests uh, in, in China um, about a whole host of issues relating to essentially how Japan had uh, remembered the war, uh, the Second World War. Um, and, and we've seen from time to time, sort of in 2012 in particular, um, the flaring up of protests in China that have occasionally led to destruction of Japanese property, um, Japanese businesses, you know, famously businesses like Uniqlo, uh, Toyota, these sorts of companies. And so that, that certainly raises concerns in Japan. Um, and then more generally, I think there are, there are worries about, um, you know, the, the future sort of strategic order in Asia and, and what uh, a much more powerful China signifies for the world. Um, and, and of course, Japan, living right next door to China, um, feels the, the sort of the increasing presence of China on the world stage very, very closely. And so, um, there are there are both positive and negative views here. On the one hand, Japan benefits very greatly from from Chinese tourism uh, into Japan, um, from from Chinese students studying at Japanese universities. Um, but on the other hand, that closeness can also so breed a lot of uh, frustration um, at the numbers of, of, of Chinese suddenly visiting Japan and um, kind of you know fairly sometimes fairly racist attitudes towards uh, the way that Chinese uh, might might do things uh, while while outside their country. So. Um, it's, it's a mixed relationship, but one in which kind of negative attitudes, certainly over the last decade, have been very, very pronounced. 
And how would you describe Australia-Japan relations versus Australia-China relations currently? And I ask this against the backdrop of increasing Australian wariness of Chinese state influence and allegations of Chinese state interference since about 2017. Uh, in, in 2013, then Prime Minister Tony Abbott called Japan Australia's closest friend and ally in Asia. In your view, is, is this still very much the case? I think it's it's probably fair to say that, that over the last decade or so, how Australia views Japan is really a bit of a bellwether for how Australia views China um, and the you know the, the the level of comfort we have with uh, with uh, the future kind of strategic order in Asia. And I think, uh, as you sort of uh, alluded to in your in your question there, uh, as Australia's concerns about um, Chinese military power, uh, human rights issues, questions about uh, Chinese influence in Australia have risen, uh, we've also seen um, efforts to pursue much closer um, security cooperation, in particular with Japan. Um, and so. And I think there's probably a second issue as well. Um, Australia and Japan both share concerns about um, U.S. engagement um, in in Asia and the health of uh, our respective alliances with the United States. Uh, And so I think um, some of our joint cooperation with one another is probably shaped by efforts to sort of bind the United States uh, into kind of trilateral cooperation uh, with Australia and Japan. In some ways, I think we have uh, stepped back from the sort of exuberance of Tony Abbott in 2013 about Japan being a, a quasi-ally ally of Australia. Um, we don't see that sort of language. It's, it's much more carefully put uh, these days. Um, but the impression I sort of have is that we are building a relationship with Japan um, that whose, whose end point is a little bit uncertain. Um, we're creating a whole set, set of sort of policy agreements um, around defence technology exchange, um, joint training operations and such that might allow some kind of future strategic goal to be put in place. Um, but we haven't actually quite worked out what that is. It's sort of, it, 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 you know, it is a bit of a classic hedge in some ways. Um, so I think you know, that, that, that is concerning um, in terms of you know, knowing what this is all for um, and, and what the end goal is. But, um, but as I sort of mentioned previously, I think uh, Japan really does serve as a bellwether for how Australia views the wider strategic order in Asia. Um, and given our sort of shared concerns over both China and, and the role of the United States, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say that our two countries have probably found even more to talk about uh, in the last few years. So one major flashpoint or major potential flashpoint between China and Japan that you mentioned earlier is the East China Sea. Mm. Uh, China and Japan agreed to set up a security hotline in May 2018 to avoid accidental clashes in the East China Sea, but tensions between the two countries over those disputed waters continue to simmer. Now, given China's maritime ambitions, evidenced as well by its increasing assertiveness in the South China Sea, for example, is there a prospect of military conflict between China and Japan in the future? And if so, what might the implications be for Australia? Well, I think it's um, it's certainly fair that uh, the immediate prospect of a military conflict has, has greatly reduced. Um, as I said, tensions have, um, have calmed down considerably since sort of 2012, 2013, 
um, largely because China's um, manoeuvres in the East China Sea have become a lot more predictable. Um, I mean, famously, even that they, they sort of they operate under a bit of a formula that, that Japan regards as the three-two-two formula. That's sort of two to three times a month, um, two two Chinese vessels uh, operate in the vicinity of the uh, the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands and stay for around two hours. So it you know it is relatively predictable now, uh, and that's a good thing. Um, it, it means that the the risk of a collision uh, or an accident that both sides would find it difficult to to walk back from has been greatly reduced. Uh, and then things like the hotline uh, and these other maritime communication mechanisms are also very helpful. But I think you know underlying all of this is the fact that uh, there is a is a deeper issue, um, and that is that Japan's security posture is premised on. U.S. primacy in Asia, and the Japanese, the U.S.-Japan alliance is really at the heart of kind of the U.S. forward operating presence in Asia, and that is what concerns China so much. You know, so much of uh, China's um, uh, policy towards the South China Sea and the East China Sea is about enhancing China's own ability to operate uh, beyond its borders, uh, and U.S. Uh, forward operating presence in uh, in these parts of the Pacific are really based out of um, its bases in the, in Japan, uh, and so that is really kind of the, the sort of the tension at the heart of the Japan-China relationship in many respects, um, and and how um, China's vision of of what it wants uh, Asia's future order to look like, and the United States and Japan's vision of what that uh, order looks like. Uh, not currently compatible, uh, and until I think those two um, issues uh, are, are resolved, um, the prospect for, for conflict is always there. Uh, and of course, that's deeply troubling for a country like Australia. Uh, we would face an awful choice in the event of a military conflict between Japan and China. Um, I think, you know, in the East China Sea, for example, it's most likely that it might be what what. Japan refers to as a grey zone conflict, i.e. something that involves perhaps Coast Guard vessels, not quite an armed, an all-out armed attack uh, that would necessarily trigger uh, the US uh, alliance to come into effect uh, in, in terms of Japan's protection, uh, but would be in that much messier grey zone area. Uh, and therefore, it would be very, very difficult for a country like Australia to um, know uh, what its allegiances were. Um, and so I think it's very um, incumbent on a country like Australia to to use mechanisms like um, multilateral institutions, like dialogues in the region, uh, to encourage um, cooperation between these great power actors, the US, China, Japan, um, to try and negotiate over some of these, these areas of key tension, to try and find ways to, to make their contested approaches to order um, at least if they don't don't completely align to uh, to reduce some of the most you know obvious areas of, of friction in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, perhaps over Taiwan. Um, Australia has uh, only limited influence here, of course, um, but uh, anything we can do to avoid being put in the position of having to um, uh, to get involved in such a conflict, I think, is uh, is certainly uh, in Australia's interests. One final question for you, Amy, this one on the Quad. So mm. the, quadril the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, the informal grouping comprising Australia, Japan, the US and India, was resurrected in late 2017. China objected to the grouping, lodging diplomatic protests with the four countries, viewing it as an effort toward containment. 
How does Japan view the Quad 2.0 and its role in promoting a free and open Indo-Pacific? Yeah, so the, the Quad idea actually has a pretty long history in Japan. Um, back in back in 2006, I think, when, when Abe uh, was, was Prime Minister the first time around, um, his... He's, he, he published a book, Utsukushi um, Kunie, uh, which is I mean, in, in English, Towards a Beautiful Country, which, which kind of uh, sort of outlined his idea for cooperation between uh, democratic countries in, uh, in the region, in, and in particular highlighted those, those four countries, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. Um, now, it didn't get much traction at the time, partly because Abe himself left power quite quickly, but... But when he returned to power in 2012 as prime minister, he sort of he resurrected this this quadrilateral idea again um, through the the lens of uh, of another term, the democratic security diamond. Um, again, talking about countries that were that were democratic um, and that could cooperate to, um, in particular, focus on um, protecting freedom of navigation. Now, this idea has been has been criticised, um, in particular by China, um, but also for other, by other countries like South Korea, who have argued, look, we're democratic too, but you know we see you know, there's no place for us in in this idea, and and, and don't particularly like the idea of um, this sort of this security cooperation based on on values. Um, I think since since that that initial set of ideas, Japan has worked pretty hard in. Um, building bilateral cooperation, uh, as I mentioned with Australia before, but also with India, and we've seen a series of um, defence cooperation agreements with India, um, not dissimilar to those that that Japan has with Australia. So it's sort of putting in place um, some of the mechanisms to to strengthen that that cooperation with uh, the the countries that make up the Quad. But in terms of, I guess, what the Quad actually is and what it represents, um, that's that's one of the perennial questions I think it faces. Um, you know, is it a, is it a quasi alliance? You know, is there any likelihood of the countries actually ever jointly pursuing military um, operations in the region? I think we're very far away from that, uh, and I think all of the leaders have taken great pains to uh, sort of play down perhaps where the Quad is going. Uh, Australia sometimes seems one of the more enthusiastic participants. Um, but I think the Japanese public in particular still has uh, quite a bit of nervousness about Japan's self-defense forces operating with third countries internationally. Uh, India, I think, would really um, uh, not tolerate uh, much confrontation with China. Uh, and so the Quad idea, I think, is, is one of those quiet kind of ideas that sort of something that Japan is quietly pursuing, uh, perhaps more successfully at a bilateral level with, with individual countries. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, I think its future is, is relatively uncertain at the moment. Thank you very much, Amy, for those insights. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks. It was really good to be with you. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. That's australiachinarelations.org. There you will also find more about ACRI's research and events. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.